Hi, I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir. This is our weekly podcast about food, about passion, and about making a difference that changes the world. And we're here in Boston today with two people who are perfect for that conversation. Colin Lynch, who's a chef and restaurant owner, uh, most recently, I was going to say most recently, Colin, of Bar Mazzana, but that's no longer true because you've opened up a new restaurant. Yeah, sure leave. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You're two or three weeks in? Yeah, we're about three weeks in. Okay. All right. We're going to talk about that. Yeah. Ashley. Hello. I am so glad you are here. So am I. Uh, Ashley Stanley is the founder of Love and Spoonfuls, uh, which you started, I'm going to say, eight or nine years ago, 2010. It's about. Uh, and it's taken off like wildfire here in Boston. It's about food waste and about food rescue. And um, we're going to talk to you about how you did it, why you did it, and what the future of it looks like. Thanks for having me. So one of the first things uh, our listeners always want to know is just how you got to be doing uh, what you're doing. And so I want to start with you, Chef. Um, I know you've got a really distinguished pedigree in the restaurant industry in this community, uh, working for a long time with Barbara Lynch and being the sous chef and the executive chef at a number of uh, her restaurants. Uh, where did it all begin with you? Uh, my mom always likes to say I like to watch Julia Child's instead of cartoons but I you think, did you yeah, actually did i yeah. really did I, I loved watching like even graham care and all those pbs cooking shows were awesome how old um, were you when you were doing that really young where my my mom would literally say like i don't remember this but my grandmother would come in and try and change over to cartoons and i'd be like no i want to watch the cooking shows and she was like okay <laughs> whatever but i think it really started when i got my first job in a kitchen where i I was a dishwasher at a place called michael's harborside when i was like 13 years old lied about my age and basically, I wanted a new bike, and I wasn't sure how I was going to get that. And he was like, well, you should probably get a job then. I'm like, okay, we can figure that out. So I did that and really loved the camaraderie. I love the fact that, like, when you work, it's it's such a hands-on and a start to finish. So it's like you have your night, and it's done. And if you have a great night, it's just so exciting. And if you have a bad night, you know you get another one the next day. So it's just a feeling of accomplishment. So you get another chance. Yeah. So then I went to the... Culinary Institute of America, did my bachelor's there, and then uh, when I wanted to come back, I decided I want to work in Boston, applied for a job with Barbara, did my internship there, and then came back and worked at B&G Oysters for a little while, and then was at Number 9 Park and just worked my way up the ranks until I became the executive chef for the group and helped her open Stir Drink, uh, sorry, yeah, Stir Drink, Sportello, and uh, Montan. And was there a point at which uh, you knew you not only loved being in this business, but that you had a real talent for it? Like when you applied to Culinary Institute of America, was that because I want to learn this business or I think I'm pretty good at it and I can get better? How, you know, what, what, how did you kind of self-identify in terms of your own skills? I love, I love the fact that it is a, it is a, a job that you can physically see yourself get better at something, but I always feel like I'm, I always act and feel like I'm behind the race like i am trying to catch up with everyone else and it's, you got to have that feeling the entire time otherwise you're just going to fall over and get complacent um ashley for you um what led to the um creation of uh love and spoonfuls probably a million different things in no particular order to me food at, at this point in my life and at this point in my career it represents an opportunity love and spoonfuls itself was i think an opportunity that presented itself. In my younger life, I was an athlete. I had been training most of my life. Um, this what, was, what kind of athlete? I was a soccer player. Okay. Um, and I was training for the Olympics since I was 
very, very young. And I had been playing varsity in sixth grade, and I had made some significant advancements. Um, And this was before there was a women's pro league and sort of, you know, sports marketing is where it is now. And I'm aging myself and dating myself now. But um, that was really the track that I wanted and that I was um, pursuing. And I think from from then to now, there's certainly been a, a number of different experiences that have sort of shaped my path. But what I took from it was the idea of teamwork. And I think you find it, whether or not you're in a kitchen or you're on a team in an office, whatever it is, whomever you connect with in in sort of pursuit of some common goal or some common endeavor. As I got older, what I found is, is you know, being in the world, how do we how do we move the ball up the field the way we want to? And we do that together. And I think that's really what what brought me to working with food. And ultimately, I think Love and Spoonfuls now is is um, a part of the community. And this feels like the the broadest, uh, most powerful team I've ever been on. And, and, but was there something about something you saw about food waste or about the hunger issue that made you say, I don't just care about this. I'm going to start something. I'm going to go all in on this. Sure. Let's really open up here. All right. Here we we go. Um, No, I had had, um, I had had an injury that, that ended my college career my second year of uh, college. And I had dropped out of, of college. Where were you? uh, I was at the university of Rhode Island, Mm -hmm. uh, full ride. And um, I had gone to New York because my uh, mother's father was the vice president of Bloomingdale's. And what is the opposite of, you know, growing up being an athlete, it's dressing up and, you know, getting all into fashion. Uh, He was on the design side in terms of store aesthetic. So I took an internship um, with Ralph Lauren. Um, He was... Ralph Horn was the first designer that my grandfather licensed, and he had come up with the shop and shops and in Bloomingdale's and in department stores. And I sort of got lost at the beginning in this really wonderful way that that was totally it allowed me to sort of, you know, not think about what I what else I was going to do with my life, because I didn't ever focus on doing anything but playing soccer. I didn't think of any other career. Um, But I did get lost in that. And I, uh, you know, from for again, most of my life, being in training, I I didn't drink, I didn't do any drugs, I didn't indulge, and and I started and I went downhill real fast, um, and I I got into some tough stuff and and ultimately over the course of the next many years became a heroin addict and I got sober when I was 22, 21, 22. and having that experience and and sort of understanding that that this complete um, shift in the way I looked at the world had to change. And that brought me many, many years later, by the time I was turning 30 and moving back to Boston, what do I want to do? And and how do I want to be in the world? And, and sort of who do I want to be? And relevance was really the key. I want to feel things again. I want to feel connected again. And I mean, food is is that is that connector. And did, and did you have help getting to that point or did you get to that realization on your own? I mean, obviously an addiction like that is hard to, hard to conquer. Yeah. I had done a, a few, um, a few rounds of, of, uh, rehab and the first couple didn't quite take and things had gotten progressively worse. And, and I wasn't, um, 
I wasn't in a good spot. And, you know, there comes this moment where um, you either stop caring or you decide you don't want to die. And I hit that point and I reached out for help one last time. Uh, and I was so fortunate to get it. Um, and I took it seriously and, and I started, you know, doing the things I needed to do um, to put meaningful experiences and meaningful things in between myself and that that life. Um, and, and after a while you wake up one day and there are miles and years in between them. And, and that's, um, that's been wonderful and I'm grateful every day for it. But certainly again, it, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen without people who've had that experience before you. Um, and I spent a really long time not talking, just listening, um, and trying to look for examples of, of folks who had what I wanted and who were as I wanted to be. We had a um, somewhat similar and very powerful conversation with Andrew Zimmern, who uh, on the podcast described, you know, ending up in a, who had a whole series of struggles with addiction, uh, alcohol and drugs, and said, you know, you do get to that moment. And there's, he said for him, there was no other shortcut to it of, you know, uh, finding yourself in a hotel room thinking, you know, I'm either going to die very soon or I'm going to change my life. And, you know, he ended up changing it, obviously, with a lot of help and rehab. And a lot of well. people, a lot of people ask us how we know each other. Um, and he's open and so am I. We got clean together um, okay. almost 20 years ago. Oh, that ago I now. didn't know. So okay. that okay. there's, and it's funny, you, you know, and at the time he was, you know, writing a column in Minneapolis St. Paul magazine. I was living out there and, and certainly there were things, but, but food is, is that thing that hmm. brings everyone together. And then many years later, we, we sort of, you know, realized one day that we had all these mutual friends who were chefs and Spoonfuls was starting. And certainly he had been on television for a number of years. And I think you really do look for the folks who, um, who sort of can offer an example of what life can be like. And at the end of the day, for me, it almost 20 years later, it's, it's been about um, being able to value your negative experiences just as you would your positive ones and and what do you take from that and how do you put it back into the world in some way now tell us how you guys know each other aside from the fact that you're going to be at you're at barmazana almost every other day <laughs> I was just or, thinking or that. you've like, been surely me i don't know yeah how do you guys know each other Uni. yeah yeah uh, as one of our friends who uh was doing this late night pop-up ramen thing and, and a bunch think, of us I used to just Lu get yeah, together louis d bakari I know kind of that introduced guy. us. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, of course it was over food. Because probably. I've I've been following Colin's career. I mean, we, I've I, I was probably eating his food with a lot like a lot of my friends. I was eating their food before I before I knew them. And that's sort of the best part about this whole thing. You know, you can you can you can get to know somebody a certain amount and then it all comes together and these and these great relationships happen. Yeah. Boston is not the easiest place to operate in and do business in. It, it, well, there are a why lot do you of, say that? A lot of red tape, a lot of boundaries to entry, a lot of things. Okay, but what it's it does kind of like regulatory have, issues and yeah, things I like mean, that. it's expensive. Okay. Yep. It's hard to get staff because of how expensive it is to live. Uh, it doesn't have a twenty-four hour uh, transportation system. It's there's a lot of things, but what it does have is this incredible community of of other people within our industry who are so supportive of anything. I mean, if anything happens to anyone. 
and somebody says, oh, this happened to this guy, everyone gets together and says, let's throw a fundraiser. Let's figure out how to raise money for them. Let's get them the support they need. One of the more inspiring things was actually a lot of this stuff, unfortunately, like when people come together, it's because of some tragedy or something that happened. And there was a a really good friend and amazing cook at uh, Toro, uh, Jamie Bissonette's restaurant um, and Ken Orange's restaurant in the South End. And uh, this kid, Daryl, who... um, Unfortunately, got uh, ran the back of violence and was jumped one night and, I mean, broke his femur, his collarbone, some ribs. And, I mean, instantly everyone was jumping in saying, how can we start raising money? How can we get in there? And because, you know, it's it's not the the cost of the immediate health care. It's the cost of the recovery. And this was something where he was going to have to move home. He's from uh, the Carolinas and uh, he's back now. Uh, he's still not back to work, though. But it was it was a big deal to how, how long ago did that happen? That was three four months ago, yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe four months ago. And I'm it sure, was, and it sounds like everybody came together. Everyone yeah, came together. Incredible. I mean, people were throwing as, as like, hey, let's throw a drink on our list, and we'll put the uh, profits towards the fund. Let's throw a night for them. Let's you know donate stuff and gift certificates so that they can raffle it off at Toro. I mean, it was. Whatever they needed, we were all there, and it, it was amazing. It's it's a very comforting feeling to know that if something happens to you, that everyone will be there to support you in this community. So, and you both feel that uh, kind of palpable sense of community in the in the restaurant very community much. here. Eleven Spoonfuls it's, wouldn't be here without it. Yeah, because I mean, fundraising, as we all know, whether or not it's for a restaurant, for it's a you know nonprofit, it, it's a challenging tough. endeavor. Um, and in the very very beginning of Spoonfuls, it really was anything that we could do and people said hey we'll hold a wine dinner and you know we'll you know come in for you know three or four hundred bucks and over over a course of a couple of years that really became something that's at the heart of of how we try and raise money well uh speaking of the way restaurateurs are supportive of each other last friday sitting where you're sitting colin we had chris coombs from Dewav, and we asked him at the very end of the podcast as we're going to ask you at the end and you too ashley if you had to uh, pick one place other than your own restaurants where you think people just they absolutely they have to try it it's a you know it's a must a must do he picked barmazana and said you know you're the guy that people have to you know have to patronize because the food is just really extraordinary. That's very nice of him. He's so been very nice supportive since day one. Ashley, we've talked about Love and Spoonfuls, but we haven't really said what it is. And I guess first I want to know, like, did you come up with a name? Uh, my mom came yeah. up with the name. It's such a great name. Um, it is a great name. And, I, and admittedly, it was, it was I was sort of figuring out, I mean, I wanted to call it Doggy Bags because I'm you know, my your, creative. Your mom, your mom did better. Yeah, the, last, the last good idea I had was Love and Spoonfuls before it was actually called Love and Spoonfuls. Um, so... I come from a. I know it's it's awful. I, it's so I think bad. We've, we've lost Colin on this. Yeah, oh, yeah, good. no, yeah. it's bad. I I come from a family that loves food, that loves music, and and I'll be a hundred percent honest. I did not think that that this organization was going anywhere. You know, wanted to feel relevant in the world. I was sort of looking for what that what that engagement with my life was was really going to be and and I thought at best this is something that I could that I could do or participate in a little bit while I found sort of my next career um or in between you know finding my next career but in no way did I did I think that the opportunity was going to be as big as it was 
Um, and what it has evolved into is, is you know, we're a food recovery organization. And that means that we take food um, from large retail shelves and we upcycle it into the social service stream. The problem that we're trying to address, over 40 percent of the food that we produce in this country goes to waste. And that's not even plate waste. It's not what we're talking about from restaurants. Meanwhile, you've got between 40 and 50 million people who don't know where their next meal is coming from. 16 million of them are children. How do we take existing resources and really we talk about building the bridge between abundance and need? And that's where that idea of a solvable problem comes in. We're not talking about additional production. We're not talking about more of anything. We're talking about taking what's already there and making sure that we can better distribute that opportunity and that food. And so for us, we've always said hunger is not a problem of supply. It's a problem of distribution. And how do we reframe how we look at it? And when you're saying food from retail shelves that was otherwise going to be wasted, are you talking about grocery stores? or Grocery stores, farms, produce wholesalers, okay. CSAs, farmers markets. Probably typically not restaurants where it's more perishable or it's sometimes restaurants as well? It's not even that it's more perishable because the, the, the bulk of the food that we work with is perishable and it's fresh, healthy food. We're heavily supported by the restaurant community as we've, you know, begun discussing. But most restaurants are on the tightest margins that you can imagine in any industry. And they are using everything they've got and whether or not that goes to their family meal, to their special. If there's a lot of bulk food sitting around a restaurant, there's likely something else going on and you don't necessarily want that food. They're not going to be a partner for you for very long. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, exactly. So this is really talking about food that it's an it's an over order. It's it's lost its marketable uh, saleable value. And so it's not hitting consumer standards and that's why we need to figure out where the value is and and do our part to retain it. There's I feel like there's there's so many places out there that do things like canned goods and, and but having an organization that's trying to get fresh produce and fresh product it's really difficult to, you know, all the shelters have difficulty finding and getting. And it's unfortunate because it's so readily available, very close to where they are. But it's a matter of the resource. How do you get it there? And what's the scale of it, uh, Ashley? How much food are you moving into? How many places are you distributing it? We've got over 200 partners. Um, we're rescuing about 70,000 pounds of fresh, healthy food each week. Each feed, week? Each week. Um, and and that's, is that just the Boston area or is it? This part about this part uh, of the it's, state. It's greater Boston, and then we do some work in the Metro West. But anywhere you go, I mean, you know this, Billy. It, it's sort of this idea that you know hunger is often unseen, mm-hmm. and you really want to make sure that there's some deliberate um, and intentional work and strategy to make sure that we're reaching people and their families that don't otherwise have the ability to raise their hand um, and ask for help. So that's 70,000 pounds each week. Um, that feeds, you know, between 30 and 35,000 people each week across our beneficiary network. Who are the beneficiaries? Are they uh, local food pantries or Less, uh, social service agencies? Yeah, mo- social service agencies. Um, and some some have a pantry component. Uh, a lot of them are meal programs. But it could be senior centers, kids centers, after, after school programs, veterans programs, f- folks dealing with uh, addiction and recovery. Um, really any place that's serving a hungry population. And they're on a regular schedule with you. They can depend on you bringing the food on a regular basis. Yeah, and I think that's one of the misconceptions about food rescue and perhaps why it hasn't been at the forefront of the hunger relief movement as as a real sort of consistent fabric. I think a lot of people, you know, one of the first questions that that I often get is, you know, so so are your 
are your staff just driving around in trucks waiting to see who turns on the bat signal and <laughs> when you guys are going to show up and our operations team has done has done an utterly tremendous job really concepting a logistical system and everybody comes in they go through a pilot program we do uh, trainings for both our vendors and beneficiaries really meant to ensure that there are best practices in terms of when uh, retailers and wholesalers can be culling this food what they're looking for and then making sure that that on both sides we're incorporating you know, the element of customer service and best practice. So we're not going to show up to Whole Foods at noon when when everybody is is there on lunch. We want to make sure that there's that there's not just incentive, but a chance at a successful outcome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So we really work to create that system with our partners. So maybe Ashley, you can give us a sense whether it's a you know, a a creative uh, apples or oranges or a, a case of pasta. Um, where do you pick it up? How does it get to somebody who who really needs it? Yeah. So what qualifies this food as as losing its marketable and saleable value can be, you know, attributed to a number of different things. And oftentimes it'll be somebody, you know, if you by the time we get to the store or to the farm, you know, it can be somebody who's who's taken the apple from the bottom of the, you know, of the display and they've all fallen over. And now that, you know, they're bruised. Um, consumer standard now really dictates that that can't be sold. Because right. I Still think a healthy and nutritious apple, but it, it's not going to sell. Exactly. It's retained all of its value. Um, But here, I mean, I think we're living in a time where, you know, everything is sort of looking like a food and wine and a bone app shoot. You know, wherever you go, everything is sort of camera ready. It's got to be Instagram worthy. Exactly. This, this, you know, the value of food. And I actually wrote a piece about this last year. The value of food. Is it sort of the Instagrammable quality or is it the inherent biological nutritional value? If we can find a way to retain that and make sure that we can sort of make sure that that gets to where it needs to go and it can really sort of see the end of that life cycle um, for somebody. That's really the the piece of, of how we get that food and where it moves. A lot of times um, the retailer or the farm will sort of decide what needs to come off the shelf. Sometimes it'll be over ordering. Sometimes it'll be the packaging is upside down uh, and that's not store consumer standard. So there are a number of different um, different things that contribute to that criteria. But for us, it's really is this safe, um, temperature compliant, uh, healthy, nutritious food that can still find an end user. And so you're going to pick up that food and you're going to put it on a truck. And in some cases, are you going to... Um warehouse it or refrigerate it or in some cases are you going to take it right to somebody who's going to eat it does it yep every yeah everything for us well everything for us is direct distribution so all of our vehicles are temperature controlled uh all of our coordinators are serve safe certified they understand um not only sort of the general criteria for food safety but we have added measures um of criteria for food safety and that's essentially why we don't necessarily take volunteers on the road. It really is this idea of of a logistical best practice where that food's been culled. Um, we take it onto the truck after an inspection, and then it's distributed to the right away. It's, so it's not stopping anywhere in between no, being be- picked up and dropped off. That's and- pretty amazing. Well, and a lot of this is you're dealing with a product almost at the end of its life cycle. Um, The way, the optimal way for this to go is that, you know, if it just 
if there's food that's sort of been picked over or if it's, you know, been been left rather than this idea of over ordering and, and you know, stockpiling all of this food um, with any kind of production, there's going to be overproduction. Um, so it's not it's more about are we responsible on the other side of that overproduction? Okay. And Colin, you were um, saying or kind of implying that the, the better the restaurant or the better run the restaurant, the less food waste there's going to be. Absolutely. And, and that's Absolutely. something you must pay a lot of attention to. Yeah, I mean, you have to figure, you know, at any given time, you have no idea exactly how many people are walking through the door. You certainly don't know what they're going to order. And it's it just comes down to averaging over the course of time. But it's very, any chef that sees anything go in the waste is going to be just insanely frustrating because we run on very, very tight margins. I mean, I don't think people understand how tight the margins are sometimes. What's that look like for an actual meal? How would you break it down in terms of what your expenses are and what profit is left? I mean, if, if you if you went into a restaurant and let's say you spent $100 on a meal, you'd end up with uh, 60% of that. So $60 going to pay for the food itself and the staff to cook it. And then you have roughly... 35% of that going to all the overheads. So at most, we're bringing back $5. $5 on a $100 ticket. That's the industry standard. Wow. Right okay. Or the industry average. So you've you got you to gotta sell a lot of meals. It's, it's changed a lot over the over the past few years. I mean, the, it used to be that you'd be dropping $12 to the bottom line, and it's just not the case anymore. Labor has become the biggest driver of that. So it's a, it's a difficult business to, to run and it requires, you know, you, you can be the greatest chef in the world, but if you can't manage your people and manage your numbers, then what does it matter? You, you won't be in business. You might as well open up, you know, cook dinner at home for your family. Uh, Colin, you know, one thing Ashley said that I've always wanted to ask a, a restaurateur about, um, and you have to tell me if it's true or not. I'd read that uh, because of Instagram and, and social media, it's really changed the way restaurants think about not just how they present food, but about, about the lighting, about, you know, everything in the restaurant uh, has to be, um, make it more conducive to be able to, you know, take a good picture of your plate and send it out. Is that is that a factor for you? We all say the camera's going to eat first. The camera has to eat <laughs> first. I love that. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I mean, we 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 didn't think about it at Barmitzana. It wasn't like high on our radar of like, we just wanted to create a great space. And uh, I think we created a brand that is very Instagrammable um, with our plates and kind of just the the natural light that comes in there. We did think about it more at Shore Leave because it is a subterranean tiki bar. So we wanted to make sure that it was, if you're going down that many flights of stairs, I mean, it's two flights down of four switchbacks and you're walking into this kind of completely basement environment in Boston we wanted to make sure it felt like, whoa, I'm completely transported. Um, so that was something, and, and we do, we we absolutely see the significance of it. If you're on people's Instagrams, it can make a difference in business. It can uh, drive people to your space. So it it is, as much as I hate it, it is part of life. I mean, I, I barely ever Instagram anything because <laughs> I'm really bad at it, but... I, I get where it comes from, and, and people who embrace it and are good at it can really drive product. Well, it's probably more important that your customers Instagram than you. Exactly, <laughs> Colin, we always on this show talk about the impact chefs have in the community and how they're uh, asked to do so many things to get involved. You support uh, organizations like Love and Spoonfuls, like Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. But it seems to me that also almost by virtue of where you are in a area of the South End called the Ink Block, 
now that there's been a kind of almost kind of a community development aspect to your work. You know, restaurants can anchor a community and lead to a lot of good things happening there. Is that um, is that something that you think about in terms of where you open up or is it a benefit that you try to encourage in any way? I think when we were looking for someone, we, we, we lived in the South and my wife and I for the last almost 14 years, 15 years. So it was definitely the area that we felt most comfortable with. It was a community that we were living in. It was a community we had the most uh, impact from uh, involved in our lives. So what we loved about that space was it was still kind of part of the South end but it was, you know, desolate. I mean, that was the old uh, ink block. Is the old uh, Herald Building, and it was. And why is it? Of, is that why it's called the ink block? Yeah, that's why it's called the ink block. Because the paper was there. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because you know, uh, pre World War II, that was all uh, brownstones and row houses and like like everywhere else in the South End. And then when everyone left the city to go to the suburbs after World War II, they just leveled it and made it all industrial. And all of a sudden, now it's the the population's back and we need more places to live. And the city was, you know, decided to kind of re uh, reestablish what the building code was going to be there. So that's why you're seeing these 14, 16 story buildings going up around there. Cause they weren't allowed to do that before. So no one was interested in developing that area. And it's funny. I feel like every time I feel like the South end's going to push a direction, it always surprises me is what happens because I was always like for years, I'm like, it's going to, it's going to make the jump over Mass Ave and that area is going to start getting developed. And then they found this pocket and we're like, cool. Well, this is still my neighborhood. So I want to make sure whatever goes in here isn't a big chain restaurant that and it's like, it was a much bigger space than we were anticipating opening, but we decided let's take the challenge and let's make sure this is a restaurant that we want in our neighborhood. How big a space is it? How many seats? We have 140 seats inside good and we have another patio outside that adds about 30 seats. So mm-hmm. it's, it was a big jump from what I was used to operating in at the Grupo. Uh, I think the biggest restaurant was number nine at like 70 seats. And then I left there and went to, oh yeah, which is like 36 seats. So it was a, it was a, it was a leap for sure. But now there are days where I'm like, oh, if we had like 20 more seats, it'd be great. So <laughs> um, I don't know. So we've got two experts on the Boston food scene here, and we always like to wrap up with uh, some little tips that we can give our listeners about something they may not know about. So you can't pick one of your restaurants, Colin, and Ashley, you can't pick uh, Colin's <laughs> restaurants or or Christopher Myers and Joanne <laughs> Chang's, where I know you hang out. But what uh, you know, what's kind of like a gem on the on the Boston food scene that folks should know about and try if they get the chance? They may not have, uh, I, m- might not be on their radar screen. Yeah. Can I have two? Please. Okay. Uh, one is Bisque over in uh, Inman Square. Okay. Yeah. Where is it? Where's it located? Um, it's on Cambridge Street. Okay. Um, and it's just a small little restaurant doing super tasty, inventive food. Chef Alex is just a gem of a human. Yeah. I um, actually ate there the other day with Heather for our date night, and it yeah. was phenomenal. Really? What kind of food? He has a he has like a Peruvian twist on things because yeah. because it's like but also a Southern twist on things. He makes incredible fried chicken, very very talented. Guy. And, what, and Alex Sands. And so I, I should know this, but I don't. What's a Peruvian twist taste like? Per, Peruvian food is really interesting because it has a lot of Japanese influence too. Um, there's wow, a huge Japanese expat culture there, okay. uh, which is phenomenal. But um, yeah, it's just a lot of very bright, heavy acid. Lots of uh, spice from chilies like uh, ahi amarillo and 
it's really interesting what he's doing there. I think it's a very unique food. I, I would second that. What's your second, Ashley? Uh, it's a little place actually in Wellesley where I grew up, and it it's called Cafe Mongol. And it's what's run. The, what's the word? Cafe? Mongal. M A N G A L. Okay. Um, it's like dining in a family's kitchen or dining room. Um, they are the loveliest family. They they open, they do sort of like a fast casual lunch, but they go all out for dinner and they, they decorate the dining room. It's full service except for BYOB. But um, is it the Turkish place? Yeah. Yeah. I've heard a lot of good things it about is, that. It is the warmest most hospitable experience you can have and it's just it's just a gem family owned yeah 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 it's wonderful well you know ashley i've never not seen you with a big smile on your face but when you talk about food and the restaurants you've been to your (laughs) smile gets even bigger you look really happy right now um so that's good to hear so (laughs) yeah they're they're great people and i just you know it's true it's i i would imagine for for chefs opening up their first restaurant um and for somebody who never thought they were going to start a business certainly not a nonprofit um it doesn't happen without your community so there's just yep. a lot of gratitude there um what's on your list Colin uh they actually just opened uh in uh the seaport well it's even further than the seaport it's down by the uh, black falcon terminal is a place called chickadee chickadee and so a friend of mine, John De Silva and Ted Kilpatrick, and they're, you know, you, you go, I went to their kind of soft opening friends and family, and there are a lot of places that you're like, hey, this is going to be a great restaurant. I can feel it. But they have some things to work out. And I swear to God, we went there and I was just like, oh man, these guys are going to change the game a little bit. It is so good already. Like phenomenal. That is like, I can't recommend it enough. Okay. These are great tips. Well, I want to thank you both for being with us on Ad Passion and Stir. Colin, uh, Barmazana and Shore Leave. Correct. Uh, how are you splitting your time between them? You're probably a little bit heavier on Shore Leave now that it's Right now, new. a little bit heavier on Shore Leave, but that's nice because Heather's a little staying with Barmazana to make sure that ship stays nice and steady. But I'm probably 60-40 right now. Okay, great. Uh, and Ashley, for folks who want to know more about Love and Spoonfuls, uh, website is the best place? Yeah, loveandspoonfulsinc.org. It's the longest URL in history, but it'll get you there. That works, <laughs> loveandspoonfulsinc.org. Yeah. Uh, and you could probably find out how to volunteer, how to donate, Absolutely. how to be supportive. Absolutely, all the information you could want. Get in touch with us, ask questions, uh, let us know what's happening in your community. Fantastic. Well, congrats to both of you on the success you've had, and thanks for being involved in the community as you both are, really makes a big difference. And I think you've both set an example for so many others in this region about how they can get involved, that it uh, has a a larger and larger ripple effect. So um, Ashley Stanley, it's great to have you on. Thanks for your leadership, Billy. Colin Lynch, can't wait to get back in and and especially to try Shore Leave. Thank you for all your support. So thanks. Um, I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. You can go to our website, Add Passion and Stir. Uh, and find out all the information about past episodes. You can rate us, you can review us, you can subscribe. So thanks for listening. Thanks to our producer, Paul Woodle, also known as Woody, who always has our eyes on us through the glass. And thanks to the team at Share of Strength who makes Add Passion and Stir happen. I'm Billy Shore. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull.